Welcome to the Life Sciences WA Investment Series. Investor meets Innovator. Hosted by Dr. Tracy Wilkinson and me, Peter Birch. In this limited podcast series, we've brought together a number of conversations with experts from medical science to finance to help demystify investing in biotech, medtech, and digital health, also known as the life sciences. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connection to land, seas, and community. We pay respect to elders past, present, and emerging, and extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. The information in this podcast is general in nature and should not be taken as a substitute for professional or financial advice. Welcome to the Investor Meets Innovator podcast presented by Life Sciences WA. My name is Peter Birch and you're joined also by Tracy Wilkinson. This is the final episode in season two and it's one that took me by surprise, a topic that I've learned a lot about in just hearing the conversation you had, Tracy. but it ties in so well with the other discussions we've had in this season. Yeah, this one is a really deep dive into a particular area, a really new and emerging opportunity for Western Australia in particular, but also Australia in the area of psychedelic therapy and medicinal cannabis. And this is the space where Australia has done some really innovative, world-leading Activities on the regulatory space and that reform has really been able to drive the development of an industry here in Australia. And so in this conversation, I spoke with Fleeta Solomon from Little Green Farmer and Michael Winlow from Ameria, all about psychedelics and cannabis. And we got right down into like the history of these therapies and these medications mm. Even if you don't think that you're interested in this space, this is a really interesting episode. So it's a pleasure to be meeting today on Budja Kundunga Budja to talk with Dr. Michael Winlow and Fleeta Solomon about medicinal cannabis and psychedelic therapeutics. Quite the tongue to start <laughs> for early right. on in the morning. And why they're particularly excited about the opportunity for WA in this emerging market. So Mark is Managing Director of Emeria and Fleeter is Executive Director of Little Green Farmer. Thank you both for making time to share your knowledge and thoughts with us today. So I'm going to start with asking you to introduce your respective businesses and what the aims of your companies are. Um, Fleeter, would you like to go first? Sure, yeah. First of all, thanks for having me and to your listeners. Hello. Yeah, I mean, look, medicinal cannabis, it's certainly come a long way in the last seven years now and I founded the company. And this happened when medicinal cannabis just became illegal, actually, in Western Australia. And I had this serendipitous moment, I guess, or luck or fortunate moment where I actually met a gentleman and I was sitting at a park bench down and yelling up and thought, wow, what if we could legally grow a cannabis plant and actually turn it into a medicine so that patients could actually access legally rather than witnessing a child who had been having to access it illegally? And that's sort of when the concept was born. So since then, I was the CEO when it's a listed company and just recently stepped aside to focus on more of my strengths, which is the external communications of the business. And so I've been with Little Green Farmer now for seven years. Congratulations. Thank you. I think you've achieved a lot. So uh, hopefully you. you're taking some time to think about that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah. And it just gives me that, that time to really focus and 
do the areas that perhaps never got the priority that I think it should, mm. um, particularly when it comes to the PR of companies. And there are so many operational urgencies that, that are required every single day that often I think what some of the important parts get, get pushed aside. So I'm really happy to be able to focus on those strengths and to, and to share the story because medicinal cannabis needs to be heard. Yeah. Agreed. I think the whole last answer sector needs to be heard, hence the purpose yeah, of this podcast, yeah. I think. Absolutely. Um, Mike, coming to you. Yeah, so I'm, I'm Mike Winley, a Managing Director at Amiria. I've been at the company four years. And you know, Amiria's uh, function, I guess, in this sector is really threefold. We manage a set of clinical services where we provide access to these emerging treatments, medicinal cannabis, and soon psychedelic-assisted therapies to patients for whom standard care is no longer effective. We invest heavily in the data capture to track outcomes and benefits for those patients. Uh, that knowledge helps us improve the care models that we provide to patients, but also hopefully can help advance the field, lead to innovations in the drugs themselves. I'm pleased to say we prescribe Little Green Pharma products. And in fact, Little Green Pharma deserves a shout out being the first company in Australia to get a GMP medicine, I believe, off the ground and really led the world here in WA, which is awesome. And many of our patients, we've now treated, I would say, more than 10,000 patients with these products. We have a very rich knowledge of how these patients do on these treatments, and many of them do very well. The third thing that we've brought into the business is drug development. So we've actually started to use our data to develop new dose forms for cannabinoids. And with our partners at the University of Western Australia, we're also working on new forms of MDMA or MDMA-like medicines as well, because ultimately as a listed company our investors look for venture returns they want that big success story clinical service is very important and it's a good foundation for a business like ours it creates revenues and knowledge but ultimately the real global success story will come from registering new medicine to help hopefully millions of patients and so that's our ultimate commercial goal pretty lofty goal so good luck yes a bit ambitious for the ethics <laughs> i think you need to be ambitious i think <laughs> that's, that's right. okay but um, we don't mind the, the mission is uh, absolutely what keeps us going. Yeah. yeah and um lovely that there's connections between both of your organizations and then connections with a wa research organization in yeah. the university of western australia i love that story getting told more that there's a lot of partnerships and collaborations happening in wa in this sector yeah. to grow it's not just about having to leave Absolutely. That stuff can be fostered and harvested here as well. Yeah. In my previous role, I was a CEO of a clinical trial site here in WA as well, Linear Clinical Research, give them a quick nod. We used to travel the nation and I used to always have this jealousy of the East Coast, Melbourne, Sydney. I used to feel like, hey, we're in the NBA, but we're the Sacramento Kings and then we, and we fly to <laughs> Melbourne and visit the LA Lakers and, and, and used to feel a little bit like we're on the back foot. But it's actually been great to see some of the innovation and the activity and the investment and support that's starting to come, particularly in life sciences and seeing a little bit of a shift away from just mining and resources to what else can we do with our opportunities here in WA. And so that's great to see. So no, I no longer feel that way. Actually, very proud to be in WA where we can uh, do our own thing we're a little bit out of the spotlight of the rest of the nation and yeah. I think that allows us to be a bit courageous and uh, try some new things so um, I'm yeah. actually very bullish now on doing something great from here <laughs> yeah I know I've changed my mind as well fairly recently I, when we started we had the operations up and running and it took several years to get licenses and permits to get going and then it was then that the Victorian government actually offered Little Green Pharma a million dollars to move across <laughs> and to set up, <laughs> and to set up shop over there. And they have a massive um, sort of cannabis investment focus. And you know it was too hard for us to get up and to move our operations. And this is home, and we really have battled um, in terms of PR and 
we were the first company in Australia to produce medicines for our Australian patients. And yet there are still many companies in this industry that don't know who Little Green Farmer is. And I think we're actually quite hidden on the West Coast. So it does have its disadvantages, but equally you can do your own thing over here. And then it's really just recently that I feel that there has been a bit of a shift in Western Australia so that there is a little bit more support and maybe it's because I've opened up and come to do this type of thing and becoming to be a bit more involved in the life sciences sector. But I certainly think that there's still improvement that can be made from the WA government in terms of support for the life sciences sector. We do tend to lose so many amazing minds. There is so much innovation coming out of WA. I feel so proud that there are these incredible ideas and people and it's really sad when we lose them to the East Coast because whether the funding's better or the recognition there is higher or there are just more people and it's just a normal population play. But it's really humbling and I've got no desire to move anywhere else. In fact, I'm coming back to WA from living abroad. Really happy to be West Australian and proud of that. Excellent. And you both spent time away, haven't you? Because you spent quite some years in the US. That's right. Yes, I I was six years in the the United States, uh, in California, where I worked and lived and worked in uh, Silicon Valley for a company called Palantir, which is a really interesting company. It was initially software developed for the intelligence and law enforcement community to integrate all the disparate data sets that they have to manage and try and present them in a way that would allow a domain expert to easily interrogate and make sense of that data. Often the domain experts who know what questions to ask are great computer scientists, so you need to make it easy for them to work with data. So that was my role there was to help find opportunities for that kind of technology in healthcare. And that sort of took me around the world. And that's where I got a very a strong sense of the potential of well-organized data in healthcare and, and what it could do. And then I came back to WA somewhat reluctantly, but uh, but really because I had two small children that were born overseas and it was great to bring them back closer to family. So um, that's all turned out really well. And I, I think that connection to the US, that idea of what else is going on in the rest of the world, that does inspire us and gives us a view of what might be down the line. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. I think for, for our isolation and working here and the importance of working here collaboratively, also keeping that eye on the global market. And I always talk about our medtech biotechs as mm. um, born global. No one generally builds one of these just to sell into WA or even just Australia. So I think we've That's always right. got that eye on the rest of the world, Absolutely. which I think is a little bit different. To it some was of the especially sectors. relevant and important in healthcare life sciences because mm. the patients we treat look and act like patients all around the world. And so, yeah, we can do something great here for patients, then absolutely there's no reason why we can't take that innovation abroad and make a big impact. Excellent. Fleeta, I'm going to come back to you to do a little bit of introduction into what do we mean by medicinal cannabis? You spoke a little bit about your origin story, as I would call it, but I also wanted to find out a little bit more about what attracted you to this market in the first place. Sure. A couple of things to unpack there. So I've always had a career in the health space. I'm an exercise physiologist and I've always had the privilege or the honour of being in a career where there's been social impact. And whether that's treating water, contaminated water to render it drinkable, workplace health programs. And I was finishing a degree, an MBA actually, and I thought, oh, I wonder what the next biggest industry is going to be or what can I do next? Because I... That's really, good advice for a career. Yeah, yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've had this most incredible feeling of, my gosh, you can have a commercial opportunity and have social impact at the same time, then what an incredible career. And I was waiting for that aha moment to come. 
and it did. And it was at the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, when I met this man who had a technology that could potentially render or make the active ingredients in medicinal cannabis more bioavailable. And I thought, wow, not only is this industry just starting, it's just burgeoning, I, there is a possibility here to actually be involved in a great good. And so that's kind of really how it started. So I guess being in the health space, that, that was very helpful, but I didn't know anything about cannabis. And I really had to look into it. I had only really known about recreational marijuana that people had used. That wasn't something that really interested me. I wasn't against it, but it was, didn't really do anything for me. But when I heard about the stories, the patients and the real lives that were being changed because of this unique plant, there was a huge interest. And I just thought, what an opportunity. And how exciting to learn something that's really new and really emerging here but you potentially can save or change a lot of lives positively. And that was the inspiration. I had no idea how to grow a plant. I had no idea about pharmaceuticals. So my first look into it and I thought, no, nah, I'm out of here. There's no way I can do this. This is Bali's, it's yeah. too hard. <laughs> it really was because it, it's extraordinary. But fast forward seven years and it just goes to show that you can have an idea and make things work. And that's what I love about and reflect on now is that you can learn these expertise. And if you don't have the expertise, you can hire and work with and partner with people that do. And that's kind of always been my motto with business. And I've always worked for myself is to hire people smarter than yourself and in particular areas. And so there was a bit of courageousness in there, but equally it was really helped by having the right people to team up with. And before we knew it, yeah, we got the third license in Australia and then became the first company to produce these cannabis medicines. And so it is really different to recreational in that it's a very controlled environment that we grow. It is grown under good manufacturing practice, a GMP, which is a quality standard for manufacturing. And it's really imperative because you need to make sure you have a constant medication time and time again. And that's really difficult when you're working with botanics and plants have a mind of their own. And so the plants that we grow have different cannabinoid profiles and to have them consistently producing the same amount of those active ingredients is actually really super challenging. And if anyone listening that has ever grown recreational marijuana, then you know a lot of people think it's super easy to grow and it's super easy to have the high THC or whichever cannabinoids that you're actually requiring or after. But it is actually really difficult. And unless you've tested it at a lab level, it's really hard to get that same consistency and the same potency time and time again. And that's the benefit of being in a controlled environment that you've got that capability. And we make sure that there's no contaminants, there can't be any pesticides. So it has to be free from any of those bacteria, microbes, what have you. And then it goes through just so many testing protocols. And it's so highly regulated. It's such a highly regulated industry. The temperature's got to be the same. The lighting has to be the same. And it is challenging. And even for our growers that know how to grow, it's still challenging. And so look, it is very different because when you are prescribed cannabis as a medicine, it's a very controlled dose that you're getting prescribed. It can be in a very small amount. It's a very gradual titration, but it's not as easy as just popping a pill like a lot of the other medications that doctors prescribe. So it's a bit of a learning experience for not only patients, but also doctors and other stakeholders involved. But there is a difference between the recreational marijuana that's grown and used recreationally and cannabis that's grown for patients and for medical use. Can I ask a naive question? Is it a dropper? Is it a pill? 
What does it look like when the, for the patient? What uh, do they look, get? There are, yeah, there are different delivery methods and that's constantly evolving as well, I guess, traditionally. And what's really bizarre about medicinal cannabis is that because it's been used so widely and historically that it had a very different pathway into the medicinal world. It is obtained through the special access scheme. But because of its history, the most common use today is either through an oil extract, which is like a, a syringe measured. You've got a bottle of, a, let's call it a 50 ml bottle of oil, and then a syringe that actually withdraws the liquid, which you can either pop into your mouth, quite often out of the tongue, just to let it digest or, or even into food. But also flour is a really big way to actually consume cannabis medicine. And it's usually through vaporization. But we don't wanna get that confused with the vaping that's happening with e-cigarettes and things like that. It's very different. It's very, as long as we know what's in there, that's really important. But we find that the onset when you're either smoking the flour, which is produced, or the dried flour, or even if you're vaporizing it, it has a much faster onset. For example, if you are in pain, it has a much faster onset than, say, if you have a oral extract oil. And that can take an hour or so to kick in, but that has a longer effect. So they're the two main ones. Yeah. But there are there are pills on the market. There are I think there are patches now as well, some wafers. They're all starting to sort of come out. And there's certainly a role for the newer technologies, absolutely. But I think at the moment, yeah, the number one thing is still the flour and, and the and the oils. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of variety, as, as uh, Felita mentions, in, in how you can take it. Most commonly in our clinics, we prescribe the oils. There is an interest in the capsules as well. A lot of patients have a lot of reluctance about taking medicinal cannabis, particularly for the first time. They think they're going to get high. They're familiar with the stories of marijuana. They may have taken it in their youth. And so we see that feeling of being high. That's the uh, sensation attributable to THC, the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana uh, or medicinal cannabis. If that's too strong or too high for a patient, then we see that as a side effect. So typically, um, we try to moderate our prescribing so that's very low. And to give you a sense for you know the audience, if you're smoking a joint, you get about 150, 160 milligrams of THC in one hit. That's quite a lot. And over time, that's gone up you know, as people have got more savvy in how they grow their plants to maximize that effect. Medicinally, we give typically 5 to 10 milligrams, so much smaller. So it's really important, obviously, the medicines and the dose makes the poison and the medicine in this case. The other active ingredient, as Felita touched on, is CBD. That's non-psychoactive. It has a range of qualities and, and features to it, largely anti-inflammatory. It can be good for pain and anxiety, and that's a common medication as well. And when we talk to patients, we typically ask, do you need to drive and what their health goals are? And then prescribe usually a combination of CBD, strong medicine, or THC, heavy medicine, to get that balance right for that patient. Okay. That's really interesting. It's not quite as simple as writing down a script for, Isn't, you know, this. And this, it's really important because yeah. it, it um, necessitates a degree of personalization for every mm -hmm. patient. We're not necessarily trying to treat the underlying disease that they present with. Someone might come with Parkinson's disease, for example, or mm -hmm. chronic pain, but we're not necessarily trying to cure that individual of the driver of the disease. We're really trying to make their symptoms more manageable and allow them to hit the health goals. And that's a really powerful role for cannabis. And I remember in the early days, our colleagues, my, my professional medical colleagues would criticize us to say, oh, you're only giving medicine to make people feel better. You know, and I think, you know, this medicine to make people feel better. And I, I, we would retort, well, why do you treat patients? What are you, what, what are you, what are you trying to do? <laughs> but that is something that we've learned and, and I'd start to appreciate that when you actually pay attention to the people's quality of lives, what their health goals are, someone who comes in with chronic pain 
who is a previously a triathlete. They're not necessarily trying to become a triathlete again. What they'd like to be able to do is pick up their grandkids or achieve some other modest health goal. And we've certainly found that medicinal cannabis has a terrific role in helping restore that function for many patients. I think um, it's really important, and you just touched on it, that it, medicinal cannabis is not a panacea for everything and everyone. It's absolutely not. not. And any company that says that really has to get their head off the sand, I think. But it certainly does have a role to play in the medical field with certain people with certain conditions. And we need to look at medicinal cannabis as another tool in the toolbox for doctors to be able to prescribe. So it's about giving another treatment option, particularly when other treatments have actually failed because there are some conditions and it can have a profound effect. But it's, that's a really important note to make. Yeah, yeah. It's all about patients really, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> at the core, it's about people that's right making yes. their lives better yes and if so. you can improve their quality of life why wouldn't you why <laughs> agreed <laughs> agreed so moving from medicinal cannabis into other types of psychedelics mm-hmm. which i know in your areas you mentioned mdma before firstly i'm just going to ask you to explain what do we mean by psychedelics sure. as medicine yes. and secondly we talk about mdma analogs so i know what an analog is yeah, but maybe yeah, yeah. for those that don't what do we mean by that all right, you got me my favourite subject now. So. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Psychedelic, uh, the term, it's, it's both a noun and an adjective. And it was first coined in 1957 by a British-born psychiatrist, Humphrey Osmond, who was actually living and working in the United States. It's an interesting story. He was in a correspondence with Adolus Huxley. Uh, you might recognise his name. He's the author of 1984 and The Doors of Perception. Before that, he was a writer and a movie script producer as well. And he'd struck up a conversation with Humphrey because... Humphrey had studied LSD and mescaline in in his psychiatric patients. Uh, He saw some similarities between patients who were schizophrenic and those who had on the under influence of LSD, and he postulated there might be a therapeutic role here. And so Dolores Huxley reached out to ask for mescaline, actually, and see if he would uh, share some with him. They were in a conversation about the uh, lamenting about the closing of mines in America and the focus on materiality and whatnot. And so there was a really interesting conversation happening. And they were proposing different terms for these new class of drugs. And in a series of poems, actually, Humphrey Osman coined this term psychedelic, which was a made-up word, a combination of the Greek word psyche, meaning mind, and delic, meaning to clear or to manifest. And so the idea is that psychedelics are about engendering or inducing a different state of consciousness, and that's typically how we think about them. So common drugs that people might recognise, LSD, psilocybin or magic mushrooms, uh, there are newer drugs as well or compounds that are taking interest, DMT and others. They all have this quality of changing someone's perception of reality. Either you get visual distortions, you get hallucinations, a sense of loss of ego and loss of self. That's typically the main feature of them. There are other drugs that get classed as psychedelics which are technically not, like MDMA. MDMA is a type of amphetamine which greatly releases the three primary neurotransmitters, serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline. And so the qualities of MDMA are more about increasing sociability, connection to others, feelings of trust, decreasing fear, defensiveness. And so used therapeutically, these qualities, both those of the psychedelics and drugs like MDMA, can be very helpful adjuncts to psychotherapy. Because in the case of MDMA specifically, it can improve connection with a therapist, can allow one to revisit a traumatic event in their past, with a heightened sense of compassion, for example. And so this allows people to do really good work in a therapy session, but the co-administration of therapy alongside the drug treatment is really necessary. And as research is starting to demonstrate, 
psychedelic assisted therapy is becoming very powerful and delivering incredible results for the, some of our most challenging and difficult to treat mental health conditions that really have had limited improvement in outcomes from the common treatments for many decades. And that's why it's generating so much excitement. In that bag, we put uh, MDMA, but there are others sort of adjacent drugs in that class as well. Ketamine assisted therapy can also be helpful and others. Psychedelics, not unsurprisingly, enjoying a resurgence of interest. Australia is again leading the pack one of the first nations in the world to recognize the therapeutic value of medicinal cannabis and rescheduled it from schedule nine, illegal drug to a controlled medicine back in 2016. They've just done the same thing for psychedelic medicines, specifically MDMA for PTSD and psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. And that's generating a whole heap of interest and activity and excitement in the psychiatric community and the mental health community on how on earth are we going to provide these treatments for patients who need them and hopefully deliver some of those benefits we're seeing in the research? And clearly regulators don't make those kind of changes on no evidence whatsoever. So it, no, it's validating for, Absolutely. for the sector. Fasc what's curious about it is we this was a field that was under intense research and interest uh, in the 70s, in the 60s and 70s. It was a very credible medicine to investigate. There's been thousands of patients given LSD, for example, in various clinical contexts. MDMA has an interesting history in itself. It's a molecule over 100 years of age, first synthesized in 1917 by Merck in Germany, sat on the shelf, wasn't really doing what it was intended to do, which was help with clotting disorders, believe it or not. Independently resynthesized by a medicinal chemist working in his home lab, Alexander Shulgin in California. Alexander Who Shulgin. He has a home lab. Sorry. sorry well, yeah, lab. yeah. Alexander Shulgin did. This guy <laughs> did. I'll tell you why. Because he, he had actually, he was working for Bayer, I believe. He'd created a very commercially successful pesticide for this company. And as a kind of a reward, they gave him free reign and a whole bunch of resources to play within his home lab. And of course, he took great advantage of that and started to um, play with uh, various compounds. In fact, he was trying to make a version of mescaline, which was his personal favorite hallucinogen himself, and stumbled over MDMA. So interestingly, he resynthesized MDMA, rediscovered it back, I think, in the 70s. What was neat about Alexander Shulgin, and perhaps, you know, not don't try this at home, he would personally test all of the drugs he would make and take quite extensive notes on them. And MDMA was one of his favorites. And he called it an attactogen just because it created this amazing sense of connection. And he immediately recognized the therapeutic potential it might have, gave it to a psychiatrist friend of his who started to use it in therapy sessions. But of course, those features I just described, the heightened compassion, the connection to others, the alertness that comes with the noradrenaline effect and that feeling of euphoria, make it a wonderful party drug as well. So rapidly, the drug started to make its way into the rave scene in the 80s and was then caught up in the war on drugs uh, in the end of the 80s. And all the research in this drug stopped short instantly overnight, which is a real shame in many regards. But over the last, say, 20 years, it started to um, re-emerge now as uh, various groups around the world are studying these drugs in therapeutic contexts. There have been incredible outcomes, and it's really the basis of that evidence that has persuaded the TGA uh, to change its posture on these drugs, to no longer class them as compounds that have no therapeutic value. What the TJ's rescheduling has done effectively is recognize that there is therapeutic potential in MDMA and psilocybin for specific conditions and allow them to be provided to patients in controlled settings, which is really remarkable. But there's still much work to be done now to do that well. And uh, I guess that's the opportunity ahead of us. Mm, yeah. That's really exciting. Awesome. And then 
An analog. What do I yes. mean by an analog? Right. So an analog is essentially the same compound. We take the base structure, like MDMA, uh, its chemical structure, and we make a small change to it somewhere on that molecule. And that effectively is an analog. So one can recognize that it is, uh, is similar to MDMA from perhaps looking at its structure. So it's similar enough to recognize its origin, but it has a different sort of biological function. MDMA is uh, a really wonderful molecule to experiment with chemically uh, in the lab, I should say, I should stress. Uh, it has lots of points of diversification. There's lots of points on that molecule you, one can change if one knows how to do that. It is also a small and stable drug that gets into the brain and it works on those three primary neurotransmitters. These compounds that I mentioned, serotonin, noradrenaline and dopamine, are involved in almost all activities of the brain. And things like antidepressants are often engineered to try and increase the amount of serotonin, for example, in the brain. Drugs for ADHD also play on these neurotransmitters. Drugs for Parkinson's also play on these same three transmitters. In fact, almost every neurological drug has some influence on the release of these three compounds. And so if we can create an MDMA-like drug, which we know is very active for these neurotransmitters, but change its selectivity, make it do more of, release more of one neurotransmitter and less of others, we can change the ratios. We think it has potential, this class of drug, to become treatments for a range of neuropsychiatric disorders, both in mental health and in neurology. And our early research is showing some great promise in some of the compounds we have for things like Parkinson's symptom treatment, but also in PTSD and other drugs as well. So the endeavor that we've started with the University of Western Australia is to take MDMA as inspiration, make changes to it to change the way it works in the mind, and hopefully reveal promising treatments for a range of neuropsychiatric disorders. And that's quite similar to a traditional chemistry drug development process, right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. yeah. You usually start maybe the other way around. You might start with a target in the body, some kind of a receptor or a place that you want to influence. You either want to make a specific function increase in activity or decrease, and then you might experiment. Usually then you go playing around and you come up with all sorts of compounds that might interact with that target. In this case, we're starting with the base compound, MDMA, which we already know has some of the features we look for in drugs, which is it's small, it's stable, it gets into the brain, which is really important. Some drugs are too big to get into the brain and they need some extra work on them. So MDMA gives you those benefits from out of the gate, which is neat. But now we want to try and play with it to get different kinds of activity, which is why we think it's, it has some advantages. But MDMA was an illegal drug only until a few months ago. Mm. And so working with this compound has been very challenging and required all sorts of special licenses and permissions and really the number of people globally that have been able to work with MDMA and explore its potential, or MDMA and its analogues, I should say, has been quite small. Yeah. I think um, we can mirror that, absolutely. Yeah. With our experience, Reset Mind Sciences is a subsidiary of Little Green Pharma and that looks at psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. And so when MDMA and psilocybin were down scheduled, it was actually such beautiful timing. It was very unexpected, wasn't yes. it? Yes. <laughs> so you didn't the know it was nobody. We no. didn't know it was going to happen. We knew, we, yeah, we knew the TJ was considering it. It was yeah. the second time. First yeah. time they rejected the application. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I guess I wasn't surprised that the change happened. It was the timing that caught yeah. us all by surprise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it would be another yeah. year or two before yeah. they might Five consider it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so we were really fortunate because we had already been two years ahead working on this and already had ethics approved clinical trials that were ready to go. 
And so, you know, it's an incredible position to be in. And when they flicked that switch, it was just insane and the excitement. And it's literally all eyes around the world is on Australia because we are leading this industry. So it's really phenomenal. But I think what's also really important and as much as we get super excited <laughs> about this because of the potential it has for certain individuals, we need to be really real and understand that it's still going to be incredibly hard for patients to access because you do, it, it is, it, it's going to be harder than medicinal cannabis and that is still quite, it can be quite challenging. And the reason being, it has to be an authorised prescriber that's a psychiatrist that has been trained in the use of psychedelics because it's not just a pill that you pop and away you go. This is a couple of treatments requiring two psychotherapists to sit by your side and hold your hand while you go through sort of an eight-hour experience or ceremony and... There aren't that many people worldwide, particularly in Australia, psychiatrists that have that background and that experience. And so there are probably just a handful in Australia right now that could actually be able to administer that. So we've certainly got a long ways to go and it is happening and it will be made available. And as of the 1st of July, it's legally available right now, but it is a challenge for those patients to be able to find the right people to do that. But I think that's where you'll find that the clinics will play a big role that is going to be very different to say the medicinal cannabis clinics that you see at the moment and it's just going to play a huge role once it gets up and going but it will take us some time you know we've got a lot of work ahead of us to do in just in terms of the research side and to get this drug to market it comes back to how a natural plant gets registered as a medicine and you still have to go through these discovery phases and evidence and what have you and regulatory changes. But we've certainly made a start and can't complain being in Australia. And it's a wonderful opportunity, not only for this country, but in particular for Western Australia to really shine. So we need to hold our heads high and be really proud of that and say we can't control the results clearly of these clinical trials but based on evidence that there has been in the world up until now we can be really positive and uh, really hopeful for what's going to happen so it's about time that we destigmatize these drugs or the psychedelics in terms of the capability if done in a controlled session yeah i think that clinical adoption piece is really interesting yeah. and important to note that yeah. we're talking about drugs being taken together with a therapist yes yeah you know, it's not going to a pharmacy together. <laughs> no, it's, it's no. really different and people need to understand yeah. that. It's a no. very different, the mode of action is different and the controlled setting is very different to any other. Even medicinal cannabis, which is still prescribed and you go home and you take the medicine, this is a very different application. Yeah, that's right. These drugs are used recreationally often to have a good time, to put a spin on things, to enhance uh, someone's feelings at a trip, at a rave. But uh, in a therapeutic context, the expectation and what you, you work with your patient to set an intention to do some work. So these treatment sessions, as Flatter alluded to, are long days. These drugs uh, act on the body. They take, could be eight to 12 hour day for somebody uh, where you're, you're going through experience, you're changing the way you perceive uh, reality in some cases. And the idea is that you're going to be doing some work. And these treatment sessions are not always enjoyable for those patients, particularly if they're dealing with very challenging mental health problems. But the upside of that is there is definitely a state change. There's a shift of perception. There's an opening of, of the stuckness that can hold patients back from getting the best out of their therapy. And that's what's so exciting about this. And so the work continues in the days and weeks and months following the drug treatment sessions. But the early research is really profound. It is worth maybe putting a note on that, that for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD. The phase three trials, that's the best quality trial, has shown that 
patients after three treatment sessions a month apart, 88% had a clinically significant improvement in their symptoms and 67% had a full remission. So they no longer met the criteria by some measures for PTSD. Wow. Mental health has never had any kind of outcomes mm. like that. We are talking, we're getting, we're moving to sort of surgical quality outcomes in a field that's uh, really not seen a huge amount of progress in terms of the treatments available for a long time. That's what's created interest, but it is forcing us to rethink how we care for patients. This is, requires a team of therapists and doctors working together, special facilities, and obviously very potent medications with still a lot of tight controls around it. And our mission and Fleeter's mission through Reset and, and ours at Amiria is to really f help develop the delivery model for these treatments to demonstrate where they work most effectively. And I think we're likely to have massive positive impact for some of our most difficult to treat conditions. And that's what's so motivating and exciting by this. And I think we hope that the insights that we'll reveal through this work will have global significance and through partnerships and other collaborations, uh, we can take the opportunity we have uniquely in Australia and specifically in WA, given we're at the front, the pointy end of the spear, so to speak, and take those uh, you know benefits to the world. Yeah, that's really exciting. Well, good. I think I've said good luck three times. <laughs> good luck yeah, again. Yeah. It's a good reason to get up in the morning and go to work, right? And that's the whole yeah, purpose absolutely. for being. This yeah, is yeah. exactly why we do it. There is no better feeling than when you have a patient that from the bottom of their heart comes and thanks you for changing their life. And that's just from the medicinal cannabis space. But imagine individuals with traumatic past, so PTSD or treatment-resistant depression. I, I've been fortunate that I've not experienced that myself personally. I know of people that have. And if we can make a difference in their life and, and change that, then we can die very that. happy that's people. Because yeah, yeah. I tell you what, that is <laughs> that's exactly what motivates us. Yeah. yeah, that's it. I think you might have already answered this, Michael, mm. but I'm kind of interested in making people aware that humans have been using plants as medicines since prehistoric times, right? Yes. And some of our most commonly used drugs have origins in plants. Absolutely. So aspirin, penicillin, I guess we can say penicillin in terms yeah. of fungus, but, and chemotherapies as well, yep. uh, and pain medications. So do you want to add anything to that kind of conversation based yeah. on what you've already said around how psychedelics are different and open that up, up to both of you? Yeah. It's an important topic because I think people can get too enthusiastic about one side of this conversation which are, are all plants but by the fact that a medicine might have come from a plant does that how somehow make it superior or more beneficial to patients on the same token you know if the other extreme where people maybe neglect some of the potential value that sort of plant-based treatments as you say it's actually 40 percent of our registered drugs have their origin in plants or are initially inspired by plants mm -hmm. to your list i'd add digoxin that people might be familiar with or warfarin and um, mm -hmm. there's a massive list mm -hmm. for the rest large proportion of them it's certainly inspired by plants and then made somewhere different even that story of mdma that i told you that's a, clearly a synthetic compound but the inspiration for it was mescaline which is a natural drug and in fact some of the precursors of mdma come from saffron plants or used to uh, which is interesting because oh, so it's not just for my paella what's that saffron not just saffron, for my not, not from my paella. yeah that's it very expensive and a little bit it has some natural uh, you know implications there in terms of natural resources so no longer do we have to use saffron fortunately we can use other starting materials for mdma but the point is that nature is a wonderful factory for complex biology and it's not unsurprising that many potentially valuable treatments can come from nature now i should say there are many poisons in nature too many things kill people warfarin was discovered because 
cows were dying. They were eating these plants and dying because their blood clots were, you know, blood, uh, sorry, uh, their bleeds were killing them. Through innovation, we discovered a therapeutic role for the anticoagulant effect. But the key thing is that many drugs come from plants. That's absolutely true. Just because it comes from plants doesn't mean it necessarily has an advantage over other treatments. And in fact, when we talk about things to become medicines, they do require, as Felita uh, explained so well, a lot of scrutiny in terms of how those compounds are isolated and made reliable into treatments. Yeah, that's what I had to say about that. But I think nature will continue to inspire us. There's still a lot to learn, certainly from native wisdoms and uses of different treatments. I think that's great. I think we have to um, recognize that at the end of the day, what patients really want is to get well. Perhaps the origin of their drug is less relevant to them than the benefit they might get from a well-developed and reliable, safe medication. Yeah, I think so we're growing um, two medicinal plants. So we've got the medicinal cannabis plants growing and they have a mind of their own. And then we've got the psilocybin mushrooms, so magic mushrooms, and that's an Australian first and they're currently growing at our facility in the southwest. It will be a couple of years before we can actually use that because it does need to go through stability testing and all sorts of active ingredient isolation, etc. But I think... It's really interesting, as kind of even just sitting listening to you there, Mike, and I kind of reflect and say, wow, we have very two different medicines. We've got the medicinal cannabis plant, which has a different mode of action, and it is a prescription, as I mentioned before, where you can have it once, twice, three times a day, um, but the doctor will prescribe and away you go. But on the other hand, you've got the psilocybin, which will be administered very differently, and the mode of action is very different to what we're traditionally used to. And I think that's the difference with this type of natural plant that we're turning into a medicine is the mode of action which really alters our mind and our consciousness and gives us that altered perception and thoughts and emotions so it's and even though cannabis can all almost dabble in that psychedelic very sort of mild psychedelic space i don't think we would put it in the same category it is administered very differently yeah. well that said i think uh, there are groups around the world looking at uh, cannabis vaping cannabis particularly get that thc effect at high doses that can change perception uh, for some patients and and there's some interest in using cannabis alongside therapy and in fact what i find interesting about this field actually is it's starting to make us think hang on maybe therapy is important for every treatment we give maybe of course it could be as simple as coaching someone or encouragement or that a bit of support to use a medication well it's certainly very important when you're making someone a bit more vulnerable by changing their consciousness. But what I like about this conversation, this field, this frontier is actually, it's it's potential to change the way we think about caring for patients and make it much more about holistic, supportive treatment than just putting all our hopes on a single medication to fix all the problems and hope for the best. I think that's a really important insight and that I think will resonate with a lot of people, right? Yeah, Yeah. In terms of how we view wellness now and the view of a person as whole rather than just the concept of fixing what's wrong with us by a pill. Intuitively, we know this to be true, of course, but our health system has not necessarily designed itself to exploit that inside. But psychedelics are forcing the hand a little bit, which we have to give this treatment with therapy. And why is that? Also, we have to then take that conversation to payers and get them to think differently about our cares provided to patients as well. So... That is what I'm most excited about is actually this is a catalyst for change that will eventually hopefully wash through most of the health system. Yeah. Actually, what's really exciting for us is the clinical trial that we're doing. It's not so much based on the safety and efficacy of psilocybin Mm -hmm. for treatment-resistant depression, but what it is, and I think this is so exciting and 
innovative is that we're actually looking at the effect of having your loved ones with you during your psychedelic sessions and being with you with a psychotherapist. And I think this is where this industry is evolving because we're actually going above and beyond, oh, look, there is a place for this drug to be able to work, to hang on a second. How is it best utilised? And it's just going back to your comment just a while ago. It's not just about having a psychotherapist there to guide and initiate that internal thought process as you know, we wear a mindfold or get administered with a psychedelic treatment, but also to have your loved ones right with you the whole way so that they understand really what you're experiencing and what you're going through. And we believe that this will have a huge impact. And so we're yet to find out the results of this study. So that, this is ongo ongoing. But I think it's really important to share that this is where this industry is going. And I think that is so important because it's not just a party drug. It's not taken yourself and just go for it and good luck. It's just not like that. It's really in a controlled setting where you are guided by professionals and it's just super exciting. And to think that is happening right here in WA um, and all eyes on Australia, like we said. So, yeah, it's great. Agree. Awesome. So what is it about WA that makes it really well-placed to capitalise on this mm. market specifically? That companies like us are here <laughs> and we uh, can't go anywhere else. We're stuck, uh, my view. But I think we, you know, we've always had to do things on our own. Our time zones are different to the East Coast. We don't quite have the density of activity. We have fewer groups to perhaps influence us or maybe bias the way we approach things. And I think, you know, naturally that means we take our view not just to what's going on in the East Coast, but we lift our gaze to what's going on in the rest of the world, into you know, US and and the other frontiers as well. We think, why not here? We're blessed with great resources. We have, um, you know, great education, great health systems quite a deep talent pool stuck, if you will, together. And I think companies like ours, Little Green Farmer, and, and I think Amiri as well, pushing the edge there, become role models for others as well. So I think our isolation is an advantage. Uh, I think we take a global view from day one by necessity, because there's no one else to help us out. And it's a little easier to hold a slightly different view of how things could look. We could be contrarians with less, perhaps, skepticism from others around us. There's fewer, perhaps, traditions to fall into in our industry. And all of that allows us to do things a bit different. Yeah. I'm interested in your perspectives, mm. Plato, as well, because you, you sound like an agricultural producer because you're growing plants, right? But then growing them to become a medicine. So is WA particularly well placed from that perspective? Yes, it is. We export most of our medicines now overseas. Uh, Europe is a very big hub for us. We've now got a facility in Europe as well. Last year, we actually won the Australian Export Awards for uh, International Health, which is just such an accolade because it's such a challenging industry to be in, let alone to, to win that award, which was amazing. Where I'm going with this is that WA is actually better located, you know, better positioned just from a geographical point of view to be yeah. able to deliver those medicines and to be able to travel because we're constantly traveling. And so just to be that little bit closer in terms of time zone is really beneficial. And I know it doesn't seem like much, but you've got to take these yeah, small yeah. wins when you yeah, can totally. because we are isolated here. And you're right, Mike, mm. we have to think big. Mm. And that's, I think, what makes WA, some of our innovators, so great is that you have to rise among everybody else and look at a global scale, not just an Australian. Yeah. I know when Little Green Farmer started, we had the vision to change one life, one patient life in WA legally. That quickly changed to change Australian lives. And then a year after having our medicines in the market, it was all of a sudden changed to, we want to change 
thousands of lives across the world. And that's exactly what we're doing. And we're so well positioned, and this is probably an Australian point of view, but because of our good manufacturing practice, which is recognised by the European Union, um, but again, being in WA, just that much closer, and that is really significant for us. And so, you know, we tend to have this big vision perspective, and um, there's sort of no failing here. Let's just get in and do it. We make it work, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So... We've talked about the regulatory changes at the TGA and that giving them a shout out for doing something first Mm -hmm. and the benefits and the excitement and interest that's generated in your business. I'm interested to also know if there have been any flow on effects in terms of your business models or opened up other opportunities from a commercial perspective other than just interest and excitement more broadly. For us, being already involved in care delivery, the changes certainly accelerated our plan. And I guess we were also working on an MDMA-assisted therapy protocol with clinical partners. And what the change did is really just accelerated those plans immediately because no longer did we have to contemplate providing these treatments under strict clinical trial conditions. We could actually start to think about how would we provide these treatments to patients in sort of a user pays model where we've got more flexibility, discretion on how we do things using these medicines legally uh, and the different commercial models that that's, that can support. Those plans were greatly accelerated. At Amiria, you know, we acquired a, a local, a wonderful leading multidisciplinary psychological trauma treatment care centre, the PAC centre, really to broaden our footprint in mental health care as well. So it certainly accelerated the broadening of the treatments that we offer, the kinds of multidisciplinary wraparound care we can now provide as Emerald Clinics, uh, as, as Amiria, I should say. Uh, and now really thrust us into the front line here where we're now, you know, we are poised to start treating patients and learning with those patients on how to deliver these treatments. So that's really going to set a really strong foundation for our drug development. Because on the drug development side, this has opened up a precedent for registered medicines. So no longer is this class of drug considered illegal with no therapeutic benefit. The rescheduling also opens up a pathway to registration and approval for the novel drugs we're working with. And that's exciting too. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Really exciting. If we could rewind just two or three years from a little green farmer perspective, we saw that this was coming, it was a matter of when, and we thought we're in such a great position. We've got all the narcotic licences and set up security. We've got everything required to grow and work with the narcotics and particularly the know-how and the access through prescribers as well. So we wanted to go down that pathway anyway, and we wanted to start and put into process clinical trials. And so it was really an R&D company and it was a subsidiary. And we thought it's a very different business model to the little green pharma medicinal cannabis, which is generating um, revenue. Whereas we thought that the psilocybin treatment would be a very long time coming and you need to go through that whole R&D and clinical process. So we wanted to diverge that to the business. When the TGA downscheduled earlier this year, it was just very surprising, as we <laughs> spoke about, and it did completely change the business model. And all of a sudden, it was like, gosh, the work that we've been doing, we couldn't have written the downscheduling any better. It was like it was almost written for us, which was so perfect and so beautiful, yet we had absolutely zero anything to do with it at all. But we were very fortunate. And it just makes that uh, Reset Mind Sciences will see demerge from Little Green Farmer, and that's really important because... It is a very different business model. You know, there is still a lot of research to do. And like we say, it's access 
to patients is still going to be quite challenging. And so it's not like it's hugely readily available, but it will increase and improve. But I think that reset needs to go out on its own. It deserves that attention, but also it's just a very different business model now. And the mm. fact that it does have a commercial opportunity, some question that and say, really, what is the commercial mm -hmm. opportunity? Because it is very likely and very possible that individuals can be treated just once or twice with this treatment and not have to return, unlike a normal medicine where you have to take every day for your condition. And I think that in itself... Mm poses a really challenging question to entrepreneurs and to businesses is how do you commercialise this? Because even though it is so incredibly amazing at the potential of this, it's a huge cost involved. You know, you have a clinic set up to have psychiatrists and psychotherapists trained in this initiative and they're not going to be cheap to be able to access. And so I don't think it's going to be as readily available as most patients think, but that will change in time. It will definitely change in time. Mm -hmm. But it has certainly changed our business model. Mm. I mean, medicine has done this, if I think of in the immuno-oncology space <laughs> and CAR-T therapy, mm -hmm. where it's revolutionised yeah. manufacturing, yes. it's potentially one treatment and you're cured, and the cost of those medicines are extremely high, but they are also, as you say, a one-and-done mm -hmm. in a lot of cases mm. um, in the ideal world. So I think that there's precedent for that and in this space, particularly in the neuro, mental health and psychiatric space where, as you said, there's been yeah. limited innovation and changes in some of these treatment paradigms. It feels like now is a great yeah. time to be trying to innovate in that space and so much awareness, whether that's from the pandemic, but I think predating that of these problems and how prevalent they are in our communities. You, yeah, you, you make a really good point. I mean. Some of the most cutting edge innovations across all of medicine are now complicated delivery interventions, combinations of drugs and lots of other infrastructure and support. Mm -hmm. Like you say, CAR T therapy, cell therapy for cancer or some of the cancer vaccines and other vaccine technology is probably in a similar bucket. This is the same for psychiatry now. We're talking about a shift into interventional psychiatry where you're actually working with different disciplines where you might have to get hands-on with the patient figuratively but be more involved than perhaps typically necessarily will change the way that psychiatry is delivered. It'll have to go alongside a change in how we pay for treatment and as I mentioned think more like a surgical intervention and pay a lot upfront for something that hopefully has a long and durable benefit. I don't worry about the lack of market opportunity though because there's a tremendous need for better treatments in mental health. There are by some measures or more than 400,000 patients with complex or severe PTSD just in Australia. Just looking at population averages, most of those patients are suitable for MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD, for example. To treat 400,000 patients with a 40-hour treatment program, we're contemplating decades of activity with a very mature industry. So I think there's a huge need, and the promise of these treatments will motivate innovation and creativity and energy and investment, hopefully, into this sector because the opportunity is so high. And I think for those who can crack this puzzle, and it's going to require a different kind of entrepreneurship. It's not just drug development, mm -hmm. which is really important, but we'll need innovation in care delivery and also in payer engagement. We need to bring the regulators, government involved, and really architect the conditions for making this treatment have the benefit, seems to have the potential to do. So no quick wins, but no. potential massive big commercial opportunity. That's it, and I think, and I'd be betting on companies like us who have had, had to do grind through these challenges before with cannabinoids and now with psychedelics. And I think an important thing is to think about this is not about psychedelics or cannabis. Those words are loaded with various perception. This is about getting people well, 
make, changing the way we deliver healthcare in a really positive way. And the, the agitators on the edge and those in WA, <laughs> perhaps are best place to make a difference and really change the way this sector can evolve. Yeah. Do you have anything else that you want to end on? Uh, look, I think have real expectations in terms of the industry and where it's going. And I think it has such incredible potential. We realise that today and I just love listening mm-hmm. to you as well, because I, I learn <laughs> something all the time as well. But it's just not going to be as easy as, oh, I'll slip down to the doctor and have a psychedelic trip. You know, it's just not like that. And even cannabis is still making leaps and bounds, but it's still challenging an industry in itself. But we're getting there. But I think in terms of very personally, and I think what I would like to achieve, not from necessarily just a company point of view, but also for the progression of the industries, Mm -hmm. is to become the most trusted brand in Australia and also in Europe, because I think that holds a lot of credibility and a lot of, you just have to have trust with all our stakeholders. So I think that's probably one of the most important things. And I think what we need to do as industry leaders is continue that research and you don't need to convince us of that because that's what we're doing and we have to because there is never enough research. You can always, there's always more. And so it's about gathering that real world evidence as well as the clinical trials because I think both have a role to play in the medical field, particularly with cannabis because it is such a unique kettle of fish in that it's already out there. We've got over 500,000 patients probably at the moment accessing medicinal cannabis. And so that's a huge amount of prescriptions to have on either a SASB, which, which is a special access scheme which doctors can utilise. But also I think gathering the real world data from those particular patients is such a requirement. And I don't think the industry is doing it really well, to be honest. I think we need to be doing better at that. So I would certainly like to see companies and particularly Little Green Pharma leading the pathway in those clinical trials. Yeah. I guess the, yeah, the final thing I, I'd like to say to the audience, well, first, thank you for uh, for having us both on the, on the call and getting a chance to talk about thing. our favourite things. Uh, but also, just, just for the audience, uh, this is an exciting new field. I guess stay curious, ask questions, talk to this about, you know, amongst your friends and family, read widely, uh, talk about it with your health professionals as well. I think uh, this is a conversation that needs to play out widely. It's going to require participation from a lot of different groups, particularly from patient advocates, from clinicians who will need to do research and perhaps obtained some additional training and qualifications as well. I think it's the beginning of the conversation and a great way, a place to start would be to follow Little Green Farmer and Amiria and what we're up to and why. And know that we're always available. (laughs) 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 We're morning and night people. (laughs) That's right. But thank you so much for everybody's interest in this space. It is exciting. And thank you very much for having us in today. It's just been so so great. It's been so remarkable. Thank Mm -hmm. you very much for your time. It's most appreciated. Thank you. Thank you.